We want to say a welcome to our Taunton campus who watches every message by videos. Hello, Taunton. Glad that you are with us. Everybody in North Attleboro, let's give them a hand. Welcome them in. Good to see you, Taunton people. I got a couple of questions for you as we get started. They're easy questions, so don't worry. Have you ever been mad? <laughs> and I'm not talking about angry. I'm talking about mad. Like, put my fist through the sheetrock mad. You're like, yes, I did that yesterday. I've got the scar right here. <laughs> Have you ever been confused? Like, you just don't know what's going on. You know you should be saying something right, but you keep saying the wrong thing. You know you should be doing something right. You keep doing the wrong thing. You don't know what's going on in your life. You're confused. What should I be saying? What should I be saying right now? Like every husband in the house right now is like, yes, that's me 90% of the time. <laughs> have you ever been confused with your life? I mean, we all have, right? Have you ever been frustrated? Like wringing your hands. You're just like, what is going on? I don't get it. Nothing's working out. Frustration with life. You, you, you're trying to work with somebody. They don't understand you. They don't get you. They don't do what's right. You're like frustrated with them. I don't understand why, what's going on. Every wife in the house right now is like, yes, that's me 90% of the time. <laughs> Have you ever been mad? Have you ever been confused? Have you ever been frustrated with life? Yes, we all have. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been mad? Have you ever been confused? Have you ever been frustrated with God? Just not mad about what he's doing, just mad at him. Confused, wondering what are you doing? Hello, are you up there? Frustrated. I don't know, I don't like this. It's been 15 years, I've been telling you for 15 years I don't like this, I'm frustrated now. Have you ever been there? If you've been there, this series is for you. Because if there's anybody in the Bible that has been, uh, has the legitimate right to be mad, frustrated, and confused with God, it is Job. The innocent sufferer. The, the one who just goes through hell and you don't even know why. In a big, in, in a big vision, you're like, what's going on? Why this book? In the Bible, it's kind of funny. It's a funny, weird story. It doesn't fit many of our theologies, this book, this story, this narrative. So why is it there? What's going on? And what does it have to show us? Well, who is Job? Job was living, uh, most theologians believe that he lived before Abraham. So even though uh, Job is much later in the Old Testament than Abraham, uh, in the terms of the, uh, the, uh, the placement of the books, uh, those books are not in chronological order. That might alleviate a lot of confusion for you. Job actually, most people believe, lived sometime close to Adam, but more close to Abraham, but before Abraham. And there are three things, there are three details that the first five verses of the book of Job give us about his life. Number one, we find out that Job is righteous. He is a moral, moral man. He fears God. He shuns evil. He sacrifices daily. It's not that he never makes a mistake. It's just that as soon as he makes a mistake, he makes up for it, and he, and he sacrifices, and he, and he comes, and he confesses, and he repents. 
And he's this righteous, righteous man. In fact, he has seven sons and three daughters, and they go and they party at all their houses every single weekend, and they have a great feast. And Job, fearing that his children may have cursed God in their hearts inadvertently and not even known that they cursed God in their hearts, Job would actually sacrifice for them. He would say, I I don't know if they sinned, but just in case they sinned, I've got a sacrifice ready for their sin. So not only is Job righteous, Job's got a bit of OCD. (laughs) He's not just making sacrifice for himself. He's making sacrifice for his 10 kids. Somebody with one kid's like, I'd be sacrificing every single day. He's got 10. He's righteous. Number two, he's very, very wealthy. He's extremely blessed. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, servants, maid servants, Homes, vacation house, and Aruba, the whole deal. He's got it all. He's got it going on. This guy is extremely righteous, and he's extremely holy, and he's extremely wealthy. And the third thing about Job that we learn from the first five verses is Job is great. He's a great man. Verse 3, this man was the greatest man of all the people in the East. Before Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. There was Job. (laughs) The greatest man alive, noble, upright, established in the land. is the person everybody looked up to. What poor Job doesn't understand is that in verse 3, he's two, three verses away from all hell breaking loose in his life. And the book does this weird narration change. It goes from earth And it's like if you were a Hollywood director, you'd be like, cut scene, shift the scene, and it goes straight to heaven. And we are immediately welcomed into the throne of God. And something strange happens. The angels come to visit God. That's not the strange part. The strange part is Satan is with them. Now, this book is going to blow a lot of your theology about Satan away because there's this idea about who Satan is that we really don't understand is not what the Bible actually shows us that Satan is like. We think Satan's in hell somewhere. He's not in hell. We think Satan's in the middle of the earth. He's not in the middle of the earth. We know that because in the book of Job, God says to Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been roaming around. I was in Africa Thursday, Europe Friday, spent the weekend in the Philippines. That was nice. And I've been making messes all over the place. It's been fun. And God says, In verse 8, he says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. A blameless man, he says. He says he's upright. He fears me. He shuns evil. And Satan, like, rudely interrupts God. And he says, does Job fear you for nothing? I'll tell you why Job fears you. You put a hedge around him. You've taken good care of him. You've given him everything he wants. You've made him wealthy. You've made him prosperous. I mean, come on. Anybody in that situation would worship you, God. But if you stretch out your hand and you take all the goodies away, God, I guarantee you he's going to curse you to your face. It's like there's this challenge that comes right to God. And God does this weird thing. Like, again, I told you it's a weird story, but it's just like, I got, you study, you get more questions than answers sometimes. And God says, okay, I'll take that bet. He says he's in your hands. 
You can do whatever you want to Job, but don't touch him. And as I was reading this this week, I just was like, say, I just stopped and I, I said a prayer. And I said, God, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to do the best that I can to make, make much of you and glorify you and, and serve you and work for you. <laughs> but if Satan's ever around in heaven <laughs> and you feel so inclined to brag on me, or any of the people from Waters Church. I, I had you covered in the prayer. I said, please don't. <laughs> right? I'll just listen to what Job did, and I'll, and I'll just learn from that. I don't want first-person experience here. <laughs> and Satan goes to town. And there's this kind of like poetic way in which it happens. One servant comes running up to me and says, your, flocks have, your, your, your crops have burned up. Burned up. Sabaean raiders have come in and destroyed them. As he's talking, another one comes in. He says, all your livestock have been captured and, and taken by the Chaldeans. And, and then another one comes in. He says, all your sons and your daughters were feasting in the oldest son's house. And there was a great fire, a great wind from heaven, blew it down and destroyed it and killed all your sons and all your daughters. Everything's gone in moments. And the Bible says in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, we sing a song with those words in it. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amazing. The story gets even weirder from there. Flash scene back up to heaven again. The angels coming over to see God again. There's Satan with the angels again. And God says to Satan, hey, where have you been? And he says, well, I was in Asia on Sunday, and I was in, you know, Antarctica on Friday. That's cold, God. It's cold down there. And then God says, hey, 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 remember Job? Remember our little discussion about this guy? Remember how you incited me against him even though he had done no wrong and it was unjust and everything? And remember how you told me he cursed me to my face? Well, you did your own thing. You did your whole job there. You destroyed everything he has. And look at him. Look at him right now, eh, Satan. He's worshiping me. He's worshiping. He's not in this for the goodies. And Satan's not to be undone. He says, skin for skin, God. Skin for skin, a man will give all that he has to save his own life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Right off the bat, you realize that this book isn't about Job. It's about God. God's on trial here. Why do we serve God? Why do we serve God? Do we serve God for the goodies? Do we serve God for what we can get out of him? Is God a means to your ends? That's not how you serve God. And he's worthy of much better. And I've met many people that come to Jesus, come to church. I don't know if they've actually met Jesus, but they come to church. And they serve God for a little while. And then things start to happen that they don't like. 
They're mad, they're confused, they're frustrated. And they check out. I'm done. I'm done with faith. That doesn't work. What do you mean by work? Do you mean that it didn't actually do everything that you wanted it to do for you? Why do you serve God? And when you check out in faith because things don't go your way, you are actually giving the devil an argument before God. But not Job. Job is sitting in dust. The devil covers him, the Bible says in verse 7 of chapter 2, with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he literally takes chunks of pottery and he's scraping the boils off of his skin. And he refuses to give up on God. And his wife comes by. Some of you know this one. Verse 9, she says, are you still holding on to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. And right there, you're like, oh, that's why the devil left her alone. <laughs> He's smart. He knows. <laughs> and let's give her a break. Let's give, and she's, she gets a lot of play in a lot of sermons, but let's give Job's wife a break. She has just lost 10 kids. Her house, her stuff, her retirement, all that she thought was going to be hers, gone. So she's got a reason. And the Bible says that Job said to her, you are speaking like one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Have you ever been mad? Have you ever been confused? Have you ever been frustrated with God? This guy knows how you feel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm going to ask that you teach us how to suffer. We just don't know how to do it. We freak out. We get angry, we get impatient, we take it out on our loved ones, we walk away from the church, we curse, we lose our temper, we don't know how to suffer. Jesus, we honor you. You're the truly innocent sufferer for our sakes, and you suffered well. And we know that we're going to suffer. We know it's inevitable. Help us to do it the way you want us to do it. That we might bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Why do we suffer? Why? This is like one of the big questions, isn't it? This is like the one that everybody asks. Why do, good things, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's, there's, there's a question about what is a good person, but we'll shelve that for another message. But we all have these questions. Why does this happen? Why did that happen? I don't understand. I'm confused. Why do we suffer? Now, before we get anywhere further in this message, and before we get any further in this series, please let me qualify what kind of suffering we're talking about. We're talking about suffering that you do not bring about on yourself because of your own sinful decisions. 
There are two kinds of suffering in the world. There is suffering for being stupid and sinful, and there is suffering like the way Job suffered, which is of no consequence of your own actions. It looks unfair and unjust. Let's be clear. I'm talking about innocent suffering in this series. Some of you are like, I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm suffering. I don't got no money. I can't pay my bills. I don't know how I'm going to tithe. I can't. I'm suffering. No, you're not suffering for Jesus. You buy two packs of cigarettes a day. You spend all your money on alcohol and, can't, and scratch tickets, and you don't honor God with your tithe. You're not suffering for Jesus. You're being stupid. suffering for Jesus. My boyfriend won't propose to me. It's been 15 years. Lord, please help me to stop suffering. Lord, please help me. You're not suffering for Jesus. You're sleeping with him. Keep your pants on. Maybe you'll get a ring on. Stop being stupid. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. Job is a truly innocent sufferer. And that is some of you. You don't know why you were raped. You don't know why dad left. You don't understand why your child died. You've had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. You were doing everything that you should be doing and the company went under and you lost your job and you haven't been able to find anything since. Why do we suffer? Well, Job's going to tell us One glaring principle in the midst of all of our suffering, okay? Right off the bat in the first two chapters. And here's the theme. Here's the title. Things aren't always as they seem. Things aren't always as they seem. Number one, if you're taking notes with us, when we struggle, when we suffer, we don't see the whole picture. We don't see it. We are finite. We are small. We are specks of dust compared to God. And so we go through stuff and we freak out. And we're like, ah, and we're just so mad at God and frustrated and we're angry. We take it out on our loved ones. And we want to we wanna rage against life. And the problem that we have is a limited perspective. We see like two feet in front of our faces. That's all we can see. And we fail to understand, and and this is a big one, okay? God has been doing something before we ever got here. And after we're dead, God will still be doing something. That we aren't the subject of the sentence. God is the subject of the sentence. The whole of history is his story. It is all about God. The heavens declare the glories of the Lord. The earth gives praise to the Lord. The trees of the field clap their hands in praise and in worship to God. Do you know the only part of his creation that doesn't get this? Us. Because we're a bunch of glory thieves. Oh, no, 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 no. It's about me. (laughs) That's what my life is about. How do you get that idea? Because you watch television. Have it your way. Make your dreams come true. It's all about you. You can do it. You can be the American Idol, even if you can't sing. (laughs) 
all this nonsense that we're force-fed in this culture of consumers, consumerism. It's about you, it's about you, it's about you. Let me be clear. You are not the subject of the sentence. And God is writing a story. And it's not all about you. Like he's been writing it for a long time. When you showed up, he was like, okay, now how am I going to fit this little speck of dust into the picture that I'm trying to paint for the, for the creation of the world? Like you're not, even a, you're not even a full word. You understand that? You're not even like a full letter. You're like the, la- the little line on the E. This one, right before the swirl. Somebody else is a swirl, you're the line. That's what you are in the story God is writing. The point I'm trying to make is you don't see the whole picture. Now look at Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, there's three main characters. There's God, there's Satan, and there's Job. And think about it. God knows what's going on. Satan knows what's going on. You and I as the readers, we know what's going on. We know that God and, and Satan had this discussion and then, and then God let Satan test this theory that, that, God, that Job's only in it for the goodies. We see it. God sees it. Satan sees it. Who's the only one that doesn't see it? Job. And by the way, I've read the rest of the book. Job never hears about this. Never, never finds out. Even when God shows up at the end of the book, he doesn't say, oh, Job, let me explain to you about chapters one and chapters two. <laughs> he doesn't do anything like that. He never gives them the reason. Some of you are going to die. You're not going to have the reason for everything. Because you don't have the big picture. And God has been doing something before you got here, and he'll be doing something after you leave. And you're a part of it. You're a part of it. First Peter chapter 4, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that you're going through these fiery trials as if something strange were happening to you. He says, instead, instead, be very glad for these, these trials make you partners with Christ. We're, we're, we're partnering with Jesus. How did Jesus live? He suffered. He suffered. That's, by the way, that's the only way to defeat injustice. That's the only way to defeat violence. That's the only way to defeat evil is to suffer through it. Not retaliate against it. Not wage a war against it. The only way to make it through is to do what Jesus did and turn the other cheek and suffer along with him and become a partner with him. And at the end of the day, he's going to come back. He's going to be revealed. His glory will be shown to all the earth. And you, if you're faithful, will be standing right beside him at the end of days. Because someday God is coming to make all the wrongs right. All the scales of injustice will be Equaled. And we're going to have to wait it out sometimes. And I don't know what you're going through. And I don't know what you're about to go through. And I don't know what you've been through. But I do know that you don't have the whole picture. Whatever it is. Number two, what else does Job tell us? When life turns up the heat, God has his finger on the thermostat. And this is good news. Did you notice that when Satan incites God against Job, that two times God says, okay, fine, but this far and no further. 
The first time you can take all his stuff away, but don't touch him. The second time, okay, you can touch him, but don't kill him. That God is in control of even what the devil does. Now again, this is blowing away your, some of your theology. It's just like, what are you talking about? Because if you were like me, you were raised with Tom and Jerry. And there's a little devil on this shoulder and a little angel on this shoulder. And do this bad thing. No, do this right thing. No, do this bad thing. What happens? The, the, the angel always gets booted. You know? That's not, like, biblical. <laughs> Just letting you know. That Satan is created. He is not God's equal. And he can only do what God allows him to do. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how hot it gets, no matter how terrible it gets, I got good news for some of you. God draws boundary lines around you. Now, you might not like where he's drawn the lines, but at least they're there. And somehow, Satan actually becomes this pawn in the hands and the purposes of God, even while he does all this hell to Job. That God has this funny habit of taking all that the devil intends for bad and using it for good. This is the good news of the gospel. The, that Satan intended to crucify Jesus. Kill him. Put him on the cross and let them smack him and spit on him and pull his beard and kill him. Evil. Judgment. Whoever hangs on the tree, the Bible says, is cursed. And God takes the curse and he reverses the curse. And because Jesus died on the cross, you and I can live eternally with God forever. Amen. He takes what the devil means for evil and he uses it for good. That's how God is. Because he's sovereign. I think about Joseph. 17 years old, he's telling his brothers, hey, I had a dream, and in my dream, you guys were all bowing down to me. Like, that's just not a good thing to tell your brothers when you're the second youngest of 12. He has another dream, and he tells mom and dad, oh, by the way, you were in this dream, you guys were bowing down to me. They're like, what on earth are you smoking? Brothers are all mad at him. One day, they're like, let's kill him. They're about to kill him. They're like, nah, let's throw him into a pit. They throw him into a pit. Like, well, this is pretty useless. Let's get some money out of him. They sell him into slavery. And he goes and he becomes a good slave. He's a good slave. He's a righteous slave for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife comes and falsely accuses him of rape. He does the right thing and still gets the wrong treatment. Innocent suffering. Cast in the prison. And by the way, it wasn't one of these Hilton prisons we have in America. This is a hole. It's a pit. The literal pit of hell on earth. And he was there for years, and then he helps two guys get out of prison, in, interprets the dreams, and one of them gets killed, but the other one goes back to the king, and he's right hand of the king, the cupbearer of the king. And Joseph says, when you see the king, can you tell him about me? Two years go by. Nothing. I bet there were several nights where Joseph was just like, what is going on? And then the king has a dream, and nobody can interpret it. And the cupbearer says, I remember when I was in prison, there was this kid. And then one day, 
one day. That's all it takes with God. Do you understand? He goes from being covered in mud in the Egyptian prison to being at the right-hand side of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sees the spirit of God in him. He says, hey, let's put this kid in charge of everything. Because there's seven good years coming and then there's seven bad years coming. And, and they're like, Joseph, you seem to know how to do this. So what do you think we should do? He said, well, I think we should save up so that when bad times come, we can make it through. By the way, wouldn't it be great to have a Joseph in the White House? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. We don't spend more during a recession. What we do is we spend less. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I had to get that in. You know I had to. Anyway, and he saves the wheat, and then his brothers, they're destitute. The whole world's coming to Egypt for grain and everything like that, and his brothers come, and they bow before him. His dream comes true. They don't know it's him, but they're bowing before him. A little later in the story, he tells them, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. They're like, oh, shouldn't have thrown him in the pit. And then dad dies, and the brothers come. They're just 11 sneaky guys. <laughs> They're like, hey, Joseph's going to kill us now that dad's dead. And they come to Joseph, and they, say, and they make up the story. Dad told us that you should forgive us. Right before he died, he told us you should forgive us. He never said it, but they're just, you know, conniving guys. They want to save their skin. And Joseph says, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. What you meant for evil God used for good, the saving of many lives. When life turns up the heat, God has his hand on the thermostat. And he has this uncanny way of using whatever, whatever garbage you are going through for his ultimate good for you. And not just you. See? That's, that's the big story there. It's, it's not, again, you're not the subject of the sentence. God is. You might be the object. You might be the adverb. You might be the little line underneath the E, but you are just a part. And God is doing something bigger than you. Now, Job is going to wrestle with this. He's going to wrestle with it. That's why the book is so long, because it's just wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. Most of the action's over in the first two chapters. In chapter three, Job wants to die. You ever been there? Chapters 6 through 10, he complains. For five straight chapters, he complains. <laughs> then he pleads his case in chapters 12 and 13. In chapters 13 and 14, he demands an answer. He's just done complaining. He's done wanting to die. Now he's like, God, what is going on? Tell me now. You ever been there? In chapter 16, he's back to complaining. <laughs> in chapter 17, he's back to defending himself. And in chapter 19, he has this great, great phrase. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's all I know. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God with my own eyes and not with another's. Sometimes, Christian, on this side of Calvary, that's all we've got. Sometimes that's it. Sometimes all we can say is, I know that Jesus is alive. And can I tell you something? That's enough. And if it's not enough for you, you might not know him. You might need to. 
Because I know as long as Jesus is on the throne, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good as long as I know that one day, one day, the Son of God is going to crack the sky. He's going to come back. He's going to make every wrong right. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more suffering, tears, or pain, or shame, or distress, or disease anymore, because Jesus will come and reign as the true and righteous King of the universe. I know my Redeemer lives. And that's enough. First Peter, again, he says, In this you rejoice, O Lord, now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by many kinds of trials, so that the, testing of your, so that the tested genuous, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know my Redeemer lives. Number three, what else does Job tell us? The first two chapters, God's purpose in our lives is beyond our lives. Do we get this? Um, Job doesn't really benefit from this story. I mean, you read the rest of the story, we'll get there. Uh, he gets 10 new children. But the first ten are still dead. Man, he, he gets stuff back, but it's just stuff. He never really benefits from the story. Guess who does? We do. Here we are 4,500 years later, maybe, on the other side of the world, in a room in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, in the 21st century, and we're talking about Job. And God is using his story to help us. In the first century, in the first century after Jesus rose, Christianity was an outlawed religion. And they were killing and persecuting and destroying saints one after the other after the other after the other. Nero was such a wicked emperor of Rome that he literally took first century Christians and he would dip them in hot wax and set them on fire to light up his garden. Those Christians were going through some serious hell. And the brother of Jesus, James, in the New Testament, in the first century, is going to tell these struggling Christians, brothers, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And he says, behold, we consider blessed those who have remained steadfast. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, hang on through what you're going through because God has a purpose in store for what you're experiencing. And the same is true for us. I was reading online this week and I found this interesting story. I looked it up. It is it is an accurate story. It is a true story of a woman named Elizabeth Keckley. She was Mary Lincoln's dressmaker, Abraham Lincoln's wife, her dressmaker. And she once told of watching the president drag himself into the room where she was fitting the first lady. And his step was slow and heavy. And his face was sad. 
Like a tired child, he threw himself upon a sofa and shaded his eyes with his hands. He was a complete picture of dejection. He had just returned from the war department where the news was dark, dark everywhere. Lincoln then took a small Bible that was next to the sofa on the nightstand, and he began to read. And a quarter of an hour passed, and Keckley remembers looking up at him again and seeing that the face of the president seemed more cheerful all of a sudden. The dejected look was gone. In fact, his countenance was lighted up with a new resolution and a new hope. And wanting to see what, what he read, what made the difference. That day when he read from the scriptures, she dropped something behind the couch and pretended like she needed to bend down and pick it up. And she looked over his shoulder and looked on the pages of the Bible and found out that the president was reading from the book of Job. God's purpose in our lives is beyond our lives. We are not the subject of the sentence. And I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what you went through, and I don't know what you might experience. But, but maybe, maybe God has a purpose to it that's beyond just you. Maybe your neighbor needs to watch you struggle through it and be joyful in the midst of suffering because you have faith in Christ that you will one day see his face. And you've been trying to talk to this neighbor about Jesus over and over again and they are like, nope, nope, nope. But when they see you struggle through something and maintain your joy and your faith, that is when they're going to finally open their eyes and say, there might be something to this faith. Maybe the only way you're going to get through to your kids about Jesus is by staying faithful through a difficult marriage. Because you took a vow before God, and it's serious. Maybe the only way that your coworker is going to open their heart to the gospel is to watch you suffer for its sake. God's purpose in our lives is beyond us. It's not about us. We're apart small part, and God is writing a story of human history, and it's a good story. Will you be a part of it? Will you be okay with what part God has for you to play? And say, yes, use me, Lord. I'm yours. I want you to stand with me.